Hello, hello. Welcome to Chingona, a podcast about women and femmes and thems who inspire with their heart and their hustle. My name is Leah. This is another episode about immigration that aired in 2018, this time featuring Mexican-American Nancy Valencia. Immigration's been a hot topic the last few years, and it's especially relevant to the upcoming U.S. elections, so again, I highly encourage your undivided attention. And I'll update you on what Nancy is currently doing at the end of the episode, along with a clip from Nancy herself. It's Nadia, and today on Chingona, I'm bringing you part two of our episodes about DACA with an interview with my friend Nancy. Just a quick recap, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and it's an immigration policy that designates about 800,000 undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children as low priority for deportation, and it allows them to work. There's a lot more to it, but that's the short version. I met Nancy in 2010 in Washington, D.C., when we were both in a college fellowship called the Archer Program. She didn't share her story about living in the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant with me until 2015, when I was on a reporting trip in Mexico City. We spoke back in September, when Nancy was living in Mexico City and President Trump had just announced that he was ending the DACA program March 5, 2018. It's currently tied up in the federal court system, so there's no clear answer on what's going to happen to it right now. Things seem to be moving around a lot with this whole DACA announcement that was made this week. Right. Um, So what, what made you want to talk about it and talk about your experience? I think I have a certain sense of guilt because I wasn't I wasn't brave enough to speak up the first time. You know, I, I was having a conversation with my brother who is a DACA recipient and he had this defeatist attitude that, you know, it's not going to change. It's not going to get better. And I turned around and told him that it happened the first time because people were brave enough to put their stories out there. And they were willing to sacrifice their way of being in their homes to get in a better opportunity. And I didn't do that the first time because I was too scared. And this time I just, it, it can't, you can't take something away like that. And I can't sit by and let it happen again. Nancy left the United States in 2011 and took a teaching job in Japan. That was less than a year before the Obama administration launched DACA. She later won a prestigious Shavening scholarship to attend King's College London and studied international political economy. I mean, now I am living in Mexico right now and I've moved around and I was talking to my brother about how if you were to have to move back to the country we were born into, it's not the end of the world. It, it isn't. I think I've 
I've tried to make it to where it wasn't. But at the same time, I mean, since I moved out from the U.S., I have lived in Japan and I lived back in Mexico and I've traveled and I've had all these experiences. I have a master's degree, but there, there's no way that I can compile all of those experiences and say that it was worth having my country or the country I grew up in and my family taken away from me. I was thinking that you are really accomplished and you were a Shevening scholar and you got mm. your master's degree and everything. So I can see right. people kind of using that and saying, well, look at Nancy. She is doing just fine. So what would you say to somebody with that sort of opinion? It's very difficult. I think that I've been very fortunate. Of course, I have worked for a lot of what I've been able to achieve, but I happened to apply in a year where they were giving out a lot more shavening scholarships. And I have friends who can help me. I, I had this plan set forth, and I would say it's like a two part thing in that. It's not impossible to come into the, your back to your country and make something of yourself, but it's incredibly difficult. I mean, I'm a Mexican. I'm living in Mexico now, and there's such a set way that only people who graduated from certain universities get these jobs. You have to have connections to get jobs, and I, of course, don't have any. So I have all of these achievements that I accomplished in the U.S. and it doesn't really mean a lot here. And the second part of that is that I'm also missing out on a lot. And I mean, my nephew was born. I haven't met him. I don't get to see him. My mom has been through three different operations and I haven't been there for her. I don't know how she's going to do. Two of them were life-threatening, and I wasn't there. And it's, it's a hard price to pay for something that I didn't do or something that I'm not guilty for. I didn't do anything wrong. Why did your family decide to move from Mexico to the U.S.? What were they hoping for? I was going to bring up something else earlier in that it's not the first time that we've moved to the U.S. as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, my grandfather was actually a part of this program called the Braceros program. I think it was, um, it was after World War II. And they needed farm workers because they had a shortage. So they brought in a whole bunch of Mexican laborers to work their farms. And then when they were done with them, they literally had a program called the wetback program. And they were all deported back. So my, my family has been living and working in the U.S. for a very long time. And I feel like 
at this point, it feels as though the U.S. is willing to take our labor, but they're not willing to let us live there. And when my parents moved, um, there was a lot of violence in Mexico's in the 80s. It was one of the times where the cartel violence was really high and they weren't going to have a chance to an opportunity to have any kind of safe or decent life. My mom had been kidnapped, I think, like, what was it, a year or two before. So they, they made the move hoping that it would give themselves and us a better opportunity. Well, your mom was kidnapped by like a cartel group? I, well, people got were getting kidnapped a lot at that time. I'm not sure. I think it was, I don't think it was like a major cartel group. It was um, like a smaller drug group, I think. But then um, she was released and it was a very dangerous time. And I can't imagine someone not making that decision when you have staying at home means you're going to risk your life and you're not going to have much economic prosperity or you can go to this other country that's not that far and you know hope for something better and you hear a lot of people saying like oh why don't you just do it the right way why don't you just get in line uh, well, we are in line. <laughs> well, my parents, my mom applied through my um, my aunt for um, a residency permit, and that was in 1996. And we've been waiting since then, and we haven't heard back. So the line is like a good 30-year line. And for people who don't have a enormous set of criteria you can't come into the country I don't remember people in Ellis Island being asked for a bachelor's degree minimum and an advanced degree I saw something about having some Olympic medals within the last five years or being able to contribute a large amount of money to the U.S. it's an enormous it is incredibly difficult to get into the U.S. And so you were about five, and mm-hmm. at that point, you also had a little brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and so do you remember Mexico very much at all? I remember my grandmother, and I remember, well, I don't know if they're memories, or do you know how your parents will tell you about how when you were little, and then you kind of make up something in your mind as to where it could have been. It was such a long time ago that I don't I don't know if they are actual memories or they're they are something that I've kind of combined in my mind from stories and pictures. But no, I don't remember a lot. Looking back, how was being undocumented um affecting your life or making growing up different from your friends or from people who were born in the US? have an enormous amount of anxiety all of the time. I remember you couldn't enjoy anything. I was in the high school band. I remember just being so scared that a police officer would just pull us over and then that I would get arrested and that everyone would know that I was a bad person. And (laughs) yeah, and I, that was just a constant thing. You just never knew when something bad could happen or couldn't make mistakes. And 
even if you didn't make mistakes, you didn't know when someone would discover that you're not supposed to be here. And when did you um, find out or or did you, were your parents kind of upfront about that or did they tell you to take any precautions when you were younger? Yeah, they were pretty upfront with it. As far as precautions, I mean, they were in high school, we were scared to go outside of state lines. So for trips that the school would organize, that made us, they were really hesitant of that. We didn't really travel that much. I flew to New York when I was in the Model UN, and they were really scared the entire time that something would happen. And I think it was more along the lines of, it helped them, I think, in a sense, to have us behave. Like the consequences would be magnified if we were to do something. And so when I met you, I had no idea for years. So right. I can't even imagine what it was like having to to deal with that. I mean, you didn't tell anybody like outside outside of your family, right? Like people you No, no. No, absolutely not. I mean, you never know who you can trust. You never know who you can tell. And it's not only like will they were you to authorities but it's also whether they would judge you for being a bad person and judge your family and treat you poorly because I felt like they had the right to does that make sense like once they found that out they had the right to treat you badly because you weren't supposed to be there like you don't have that thing the the courage or the gusto to where like Hispanic kids I've seen that are just like try to kick me out and I'm like well you really could and that would be horrible so the stakes were really high for you like all the time yeah and what was that like growing up in a rural part of Texas like rural Texas well I didn't talk about it and I think I downplayed um my being Mexican and I, I didn't ever speak Spanish, and I just tried to, to blend in as much as possible. So what, what were the circumstances around the time that you ended up leaving the U.S.? When I left the U.S., I had just turned 23, I think, 22, 23. And I had been out of college for a year, and I... Obviously, I couldn't find a job because I didn't have the social security or I didn't have anything that would allow me to work there legally. So I had worked, I was cleaning houses with my mom and it was incredibly depressing. And it it was just such a fall because the year before, I had been um, named the legacy of UT Tyler, and it's an award given to one student a year. And I was in the Archer program with you in D.C. And I had all these wonderful experiences and all of these people thinking that I could aspire to be all these things. I was president of the pre-law society because I always wanted to be an attorney. And then it all ended, and I had to just live the life that I worked really hard not to. And 
who was a very difficult part of my life. And I started looking into jobs everywhere and I found a post that took me in, um, in Japan. It was a big move, but I felt like if I didn't move, then I would just die. Like, it's just, it's too soul crushing to have things shown to you, like possibilities shown to you and then taken away. How old were you at that point? 20? I had just turned 23. You got a job in Japan teaching English. Mm-hmm. You flew out when? I flew out on October 17th. Of 2011? Yes, mm-hmm. 2011. So you were living in Japan, and then DACA was introduced in June the following year. Yes. Just what was that period like for you? Um, well, I was adjusting. I really enjoyed working in Japan because I had, I mean, I could work and I could show people my documentation and they would just take it. And I was earning money. I was really far away from home. But it was an experience I never thought I would have. I mean, when I was a kid, we couldn't, it was difficult to leave state lines. And suddenly I'm in Japan. And that was a really interesting experience. But I was just so far from home. Hearing about DACA was actually, it felt good because it felt like, well, my brother was able to benefit from it at the time. And I felt like he was being protected and that made, it made me feel comforted by that. I didn't so much feel jealous because I had already given up on that. But I felt good that someone could benefit from it. And so at that point, like, where did you see yourself going? Were you just, did you just think you would kind of go with the flow? Or did you think about staying in Japan, like, long term at that point? Well, my plan was always to find a way back to my family. So I I wanted to go to graduate school and my long-term plan was to get enough money to be able to pay for some of it. And I raised some money and then um, I applied to King's College and I was accepted while there, but it's so expensive. And then I made the plan that I had to move back to Mexico, work there for two years and apply for the shavening scholarship, which I did. And you got it. I, I got it, yeah, I got it. And I went to University, or King's College, London. I'm glad you did that. You're so smart and you're so cool. <laughs> now you're, Thanks. You have a master's degree. I'm so proud of you, Nancy. <laughs> thank you, thank you. What advice would you give to people who, who either have returned or maybe they're afraid that they're going to have to return soon. You know, people like you who were really little kids when they came to the U.S. and don't, you know, don't have that, those connections in their, their country of origin. Right. Well, the fight's not over yet. And it, it really isn't. And my brother had this whole, like, oh, well, there's no point in it. I'll just try to make as much money in the next six months and then decide what to do from there. But it's not over yet. And he, and he said that, you know, nothing ever happens. Like we talked about, our immigration case has been 
there for two decades and it hasn't moved. But the thing is, if you don't act and if you don't put your face out there and your name and you personalize this, if someone wants to deport you, let them see your face. Let them know who they're hurting, whose family they're separating. It's not, it's 800,000 people, but it's not a number. We're not like... We're not faceless creatures that you can just move from one place to another. We're human beings. And it just reminded me of the Desmond Tutu quote, that if you are neutral in a situation of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If you don't act, and if you don't say something, and if you don't put your face to these numbers, then you are making it easier for racist xenophobic people to take you out of your home and I mean if you are to come to your home back to your home country where you were born there's a lot that you can contribute to both you can learn more about it and just be open to it you know I've learned a lot about Mexico and what makes it diverse and beautiful and I feel like that was taken from me at the same time when I was living in the U.S. and I was so scared to return to this country and now I'm here and I am very proud to be Mexican and I couldn't have said that maybe five six years ago. I've learned what it's like how difficult it is and I mean I'm willing to help. I I know a lot of people here in Mexico, and if you need a source, I, I know I know of people, and I know how hard it was to get reestablished here. And I'm I mean I am happy to lend my support to anyone that needs it. Nancy also touched on some of the more xenophobic aspects of the immigration debate. It is worth noting that in exchange for a pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients, President Trump has called for more limits on legal immigration into the U.S. Why do we have to be this way, Nancy? <laughs> Honestly, it comes back to the what I was telling you about the Braceros program. Like, you're okay, well, particularly because I'm Mexican, I'll talk about Mexican stuff like you're okay you love our food you love Mexican food you love Cinco de Mayo you love how we build buildings for you and we take care of your children but you love the Mexican hands but not the bodies that accompany them and you're willing to just throw them out after you've used them Before DACA, there were debates on laws meant to protect young, undocumented people going back nearly 20 years. The first version of the DREAM Act, which stands for Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors, was introduced in Congress in 2001. It just seems like we keep fighting the same fight over and over again, and I'm really hoping that something is different this time, but I'm not sure what that something needs to be. Right. I agree. I think the, the thing that we have going in our favor, though, is that people already gave 
people have already contributed. People have, all of the dreamers have gotten jobs or that they've been in the system and people know who they are. And it's a lot more difficult to take things away now. You know, now we have names and faces and we know who these people are. And it just seems particularly evil to... It seems like you laid a trap for all these people where you asked, the government asked them to give their information, to tell people where they were living and tell the government that they're undocumented. And then they're, they said that they would help them. And at the last moment, they're just like, oh, we're just kidding. We're actually going to deport you. But thanks for the tax revenue. You know, I love the stories of was it Jesus Contreras? He's the firefighter. He's a DACA recipient, and he worked in um, Houston during the hurricane. He's saving lives. He's saving lives, and you want to deport him. It's just incredible. Yeah. That's right. I mean, how much more? What more do we need to do? My brother and I were joking about this yesterday, but he's like, how... What do I need to do to prove that I'm American enough to stay here? He's all American, my brother. You know that prize that you get for being like a top athlete in the in college? He's all American. Mm-hmm. It's like we have the trophy and everything at home. And he's just like, what do I need to do? Do I need to win a hot dog eating contest? Like, what is this? What are these loopholes? I think, well, I hope that numbers are changing. And the younger people aren't going to be satisfied with letting there only be like this very narrow stereotype or narrow definition of what it means to be American. Like, it's not like back in the day when we all had to fit into this cookie cutter in order to be accepted. But that's always been constantly moving, though, right? First, it was the British people that came in and they targeted Italians and it was the Irish. It's always been a new group of people. And I just can't help but remembering that these people that we're targeting now are majority like darker skinned people. And I wonder if that has anything to do with why they're not being accepted. I wonder if there's this fear that as like the minority population grows and minorities gain like more influence and political mm. power that the eventual white minority will be treated as poorly <laughs> yeah. as like communities of color have. And I just want to be like, no, like we're not going to yeah. move you that way. Like, no. We know what it's like to go through that and we're not going to put you through no. that. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, honestly. I mean, the way, like the things that we've, put up with the dirty stares that you get um, being followed around a convenient I mean just the basic things that I get in life I fortunately have never been arrested or pulled over or anything like that but a lot of people do uh, I mean there's a we are disproportionately like Latino and African American people are disproportionately um represented in penitentiaries and black people latino people are more likely to have longer stays because of like small drug possession and there's a lot of problems 
and we've faced a lot of it. And I don't, I feel like having gone through adversity makes you, or hopefully makes you a more compassionate person. And I feel like we've gone through our share of adversity. And do you feel like everything you've gone through has kind of changed your DNA a little bit? You know, 23-year-old Nancy, what would she think of Nancy now? I've had a lot of therapy. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> Therapy's good. Um, and I've realized I'm a much more happy person. I I was never really that happy before. I was in I was an under an enormous amount of anxiety. And actually, when I went to my therapist, um, he was amazed at that amount, having that amount of anxiety for that amount of time. He said it was incredibly unhealthy, which actually made me feel better because I, I felt like, oh, this isn't a natural thing for to happen to you. This isn't good for you. Having a lot of that taken away has made me lighter. And also another thing, I would have never spoken out about this stack of all of these things, all of these injustices happening. But now I feel entitled to. I, I've seen injustice. I know what it is. I'm separated from it now to an extent. And I just... I feel stronger and I refuse to let this happen again or I refuse to let it happen without saying my piece. How many years has it been since? Um, we're going six years. It's been a long time. A lot of stuff has happened. What are your plans for the next four years and at the end of that does it include uh, applying for a visa back to the U.S.? As much as I can critique the U.S. especially from coming like once you're out of the U.S. you see the U.S. differently and I know a lot of expats mm-hmm. who see that like I grew up for a long time in Longview, Texas like a super conservative part of the South. Gun ownership and Confederate flags were very normal there. And now I see it and I'm really like, wow, that's that's incredible. So as much as I can judge it for its flaws, it gave my family an opportunity and it is my home. It is. I have plans to eventually apply for a Fulbright, attend graduate school in the U.S., and but I do those are my long term plans. But I do want I need to visit. I need to see my home. I need to see my house and see the dog and the baby and my family. I mean that's it's where I grew up. It's what I know. I I remember we took a dialect test when I was um, at King's for my language course. I couldn't blend into any of the other ones. Everyone's like, oh, maybe you're from here, from here. And they're like, you're 100% American. Like, you have the most American accent I have ever heard. And I think they meant to insult me. But, I mean, it's, it's who I am. It's the values that I grew up with. Since this interview, Nancy still hasn't been back to the States to see her family. And as you can imagine, it's been difficult. Here's more from Nancy herself. At this point, 
it has been nearly 10 years since I have been to the U.S. I left in, it was October of 2011, so almost 10 years, and I think... I mean, a lot's happened. My sister's gotten married. My mom was really sick about five years ago, and I wasn't able to do anything about and, like, help her. She's doing better now. But I feel like it's been been a tough strain on my family being away for nearly a decade. Okay, I promise this Chingona update is not all sad news because... Since this episode aired, Nancy got married, and she's living in Sweden now. She just started a statistics and R course at SLU University in Uppsala. These days, she is busy studying and teaching kids remotely. Thank you to Nadia for producing the original episode back in 2018, and a big, big thank you to Nancy and her husband, who was kind enough to send me a voice message teaching me how to pronounce Uppsala. I only hope I did it right. I tried many, many times. Special thanks to my uncle Raul Garza Jr. for writing and performing the theme music. Follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Chingona Podcast. And I'll talk to y'all soon.